Welcome to episode 210 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre featuring conversations with actors, directors, playwrights, and more. In this episode, I will be talking to Tanisha Tate, Artistic Director of Cahoots Theatre. But first, next month, the amazing Eldritch Theatre is presenting The Harrowing of Brimstone McCready, which features Eldritch's artistic director Eric Wolf as Brimstone McCready as he brings to life the story of a two-bit con man in over his head against the dark spirits of the North in a tale of greed, horror, and grift. And you know what? I love this show. And because I love this show so much, I've teamed up with Eldritch Theatre to get you a sweet discount on tickets. All you have to do is use the promo code STAGEWORTHY, that's STAGEWORTHY, all one word, when you buy tickets to the harrowing of Brimstone McCready at eldritchtheatre.ca. If you like the podcast, I hope that you'll leave a comment or rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Your ratings and comments help new people find this show. Or you know what? Even better, if you know someone that you think will like this show, tell them about it. Some of my favorite podcasts became my favorites because someone I knew told me about them. So if you tell someone about Stageworthy, let me know about it. You can find Stageworthy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website at StageworthyPodcast.com. And if you want to drop me a line, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at PhilRickaby, and my website is PhilRickaby.com. As I mentioned, my guest this week is Tanisha Tate. Tanisha is an actor, a playwright, a director, an educator, an activist, as well as the artistic director of Cahoots Theatre. In addition, her play Admissions has been included in the upcoming anthology Fierce, Five Plays for High Schools. We met at the Cahoots offices to talk about directing Othello at the University of Windsor, what Cahoots Theatre means to her, as well as how she ended up making her life in the theatre. How has, I mean, how long have you been officially artistic director of Cahoots Theatre? Since October 1st. Since October 1st. So only like a few weeks. Mm-hmm. How, 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 how is it coming in to a season that's already essentially underway? Well, our season started a week after I started. Okay, okay. So that was, that was good. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was no kind of easing myself in at all. <laughs> I started on October 1st. We had a show open on the 9th. Mm-hmm. And I also had to have the lion's share of our uh, Canada Council grant due on the 9th. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah. And also, on the first day of my job, <laughs> the very first day, mm-hmm. uh, we were interviewing for a new general manager because we don't have one. Of course, because Kat had left just before. That's right, Kat left on September 13th. Right. So my first week was a tornado. I can imagine. Yeah. I can imagine. Is there there any way that you... How do you prepare yourself for going into that, or can you? You know, no. (laughs) (laughs) Not really. I mean, I knew that it was going to be a crazy week. Mm -hmm. Um, It wasn't like it was a surprise. But it wasn't what I expected when I got the job. 
You know what I mean? What, so, what, what does one expect? What did you expect? Well, when you... I got the job, I didn't know that I wasn't going that I wasn't going to have a leadership partner going in. Oh. So that was very new. Right. And also, when I got the job, I didn't know what the opening day of Helot was. Mm. So I thought I was going to be coming into a job with my GM. I knew the grant was due pretty mm-hmm. soon. But that was that was it. And suddenly it was like, nope, we're opening a show and you are leading the company alone, mm-hmm. essentially, until mm-hmm. we find somebody. Luckily, you know, we have really lovely part-time staff. Yes. And they're amazing. And mm-hmm. they've been, thank God they're here. Yeah. But, yeah, it has been right into the fire. Right. Right. Into the fire. <laughs> and you came straight from doing uh, Othello in, in, in Windsor. Windsor. Yes. So you directed that, and, and, and then you left that and came here. Had that show, that show had just opened when you came here? Yes. Yeah. I We opened uh, <coughs> Othello on September 27th. Mm-hmm. I was there until the 29th. Mm-hmm. I came home. I had the 30th off, and then I started on the 1st. <laughs> wow. <clears throat> wow. Yeah. Do you, do you like... Working at that pace, like going like immediately from one thing to another, or do you ever do you ever find it exhausting? Do you? You know, it's both at the same time. the <coughs> The adrenaline mm-hmm. allows you to do it, mm-hmm. and you're very psyched and wired and pumped up. When you stop for a moment, you realize how completely exhausted you are. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of the pace, I do like having project after project. It keeps mm-hmm. you excited. It keeps sure. your brain moving. But. Would I have loved to have had a few days before starting here? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I would have. But, you know. Yeah. I mean, but the start date is the start the date. The start date yeah. was the start date. Yeah. And, yeah, I just, I mean, I couldn't believe how quickly October 1st arrived. Mm-hmm. Well, because I had I'd emailed almost after the announcement to see if we could, if I could sit down. And they were like, talks was in the fall. So, which, of course... Makes perfect sense because you you have all of the other things that you're doing. You were there running was so the much. I was yes. And, yeah. I was hired on the 20th of June. We didn't announce for over a month, and so that was its own thing. You know, keeping that quiet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I started at tent on July the second. Yeah, and that's a very very intensive job, yeah. and so tent ended, and then a week. Or so, the tent ended on the 14th. We announced on the 25th. And yeah, I mean, it was just kind of kind of that thing where we announced and then very shortly after that, I was getting into kind of pre-production mode for Othello. Mm-hmm. And uh, I started on August 19th in Windsor. Right. So I didn't even have a month and uh, had to jump into a... Very intensive six-week process in Windsor that I absolutely loved, and then came back and had one day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, there, there's there's so much to, to talk about there, but I do want to start really by 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 or continue by asking you about what Cahoots Theater Projects means to you. Mm. Cahoots to me is, and I've described it this way before. I think of it as the little engine that could. I think of it as this theater company that when you actually look at the scale of its resources, probably shouldn't still exist. Seriously. But it is so, there's so much tenacity here and so much 
passion and a very deep commitment to the mandate. And I think of it as a microphone for voices that don't get amplification mm -hmm. and for artists that very often don't find their way on onto, quote, mainstream stages, whatever mm -hmm. mainstream actually means. But there are so many artists making incredible work, artists of color and queer artists and disabled artists and mm -hmm. deaf artists and all of these artists that have these, often because of their experiences in life, mm -hmm. like powerful, magical stories to tell, yeah. but for some reason aren't deemed marketable, interesting, the every person, whatever. And so they don't get programmed. Mm -hmm. And Cahoots is that place that is not only saying, okay, come to us, you know, some kind of a consolation prize, but that says actively, you're what we want. Yeah. You're the stories that we actually are excited by. Mm -hmm. Do you remember what your first interaction with Cahoots was? My first interaction with Cahoots. That's a great question. I wonder if it might have been seeing paper series, possibly. Mm -hmm. I think it was as an audience member. Mm -hmm. um, I remember being very interested in the leadership of Cahoots because I had heard a lot about Nina. This was when I first became aware of Cahoots was mm -hmm. when Nina was the, the AD. Sure. And she was someone that I wanted to meet, but I was kind of intimidated by her and didn't know her. And I was like, oh, I don't know, I'm just going to call Nina Leachino. And then I became more interested in Cahoots when Marjorie took over, because Marjorie and I have known each other for about 35 years. We mm -hmm. went to elementary school together. Oh, wow. And high school together. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> yeah. So I've known Marjorie since I think she was eight and I was nine. <laughs> um, and then I was like, okay, this is just really, really interesting to me. And the work that they were doing and seeing one day you would see you know, Caribbean artists, and then you'd see Asian artists, then you'd see Latino artists, and just taking the world and taking the the microcosm of the world that is Toronto and mm -hmm. putting it on stage mm -hmm. was super exciting to me. And I didn't really see a lot of other companies doing that. Now more so because now the artistic directors have really diversified. Yeah. But at the time, like 12 years ago, it just, no, it was not happening. No, no. I mean, it could still happen more. Absolutely, it I could mean, still happen more. I know, I, you know, I follow you on Facebook and I see things that you post. And I know that you've, you've had some conversations with, the, say, Stratford, for example, and other artistic directors. And, and it's an on, ongoing conversation. But I, I, I sense that there might be a little bit of frustration with the speed at which those larger theaters you are. Think? You think? a little bit. <laughs> just, just a vague sense. Abs I mean, yes. I, I think I'm getting to the point now. And it's funny because... We each, you know, go at our own pace and mm -hmm. figure things out at our own pace. And I think at this point, my desire to beg the gatekeepers to let us in is waning. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not I'm not interested in that anymore. What I am interested in is in artists who deserve opportunities mm -hmm. getting those opportunities. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to have to beg an artistic director or a director to operate with some sense of moral compunction or global consciousness. I want that person to have that innately mm -hmm. and to want diverse rooms because right. it's exciting to have diverse rooms. Mm -hmm. So I think what I'm appealing to now is just asking people to realize diversity 
is diversity isn't this thing that we're reaching for. Diversity is like walk outside. Yeah. <laughs> you yes. know? Yeah. So diversity is. So now it's a matter of even inclusion to me is not interesting because inclusion just means that I put you in a room with me. Right. It doesn't mean that I give you any power in the no. room. So inclusion, representation, they're all nice words, but I'm talking about participation, mm -hmm. integration. Integration to me is super important where people of all types are integrated into the way a company functions, into the way um, its mandate operates, into the way it programs. Mm -hmm. That's that's what's exciting to me. Mm -hmm. And I I will continue to call on people to aim for that because I want artists to work and I want artists to be able to showcase the, the talents that they have. But um, I don't I no longer see it in this kind of knock, 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 please let us in yeah. thing. It's more like open your eyes, open your eyes and do what you should be doing in 2019 because mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. stupid to not be doing it. I agree. I mean, obviously. I mean, if this is this is the when when we walk outside the doors here, yeah, we are going to see diversity on the street, and that should be what we see on our stages. They should reflect reality. Yeah, and in a lot of the larger theaters, we don't see that. Yeah, and I and I think you have to you know you have to have common sense. I don't expect a theater in Timmins or a theater in Red Deer mm -hmm. to reflect the same thing that I expect a theater in Toronto to, rep to no. reflect. Mm -hmm. This is one of the most diverse cities on the planet. There is no excuse. There's no excuse. No. The only reason is a lack of will and a lack of interest. Sure. That's Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. There's a lot of theaters that will say, well, we couldn't find any actors That's of color. Fair. And That's that is, nonsense. That is, such a, that is such bullshit. That's nonsense. To say. Yeah. If you wanted, if you want an actor of color, you could find an actor of it color. I mean, yes. <laughs> right? It, it's ridiculous. I mean, I remember a couple years back walking along Front Street and walking alongside the front of Canadian Stage and mm -hmm. seeing they had their posters up for all the shows in their season. Mm -hmm. And it was just white face after white face after white face. Mm -hmm. And the one face of color was from their, like, international series. <laughs> yeah. And I just, I just laughed. Mm -hmm. I just laughed. Because it was this ridiculous notion that people of color were only interesting when you could parachute them in and exoticize them as right. being South African or Japanese. Yeah. But that the incredible artists of color in Toronto weren't yeah. worthy. And I mean that I mean Kansas State has justifiably been taking a task for that, but they have been slow to They move. Yeah, they've been slow to move and honestly absolutely thrilled that brendan is there yeah it's a it's a very new energy and a new set of eyes mm -hmm. that that company's being looked through and i'm super grateful to that for that but i mean that was just a few years back yeah. and they're not the only ones by any stretch no there are many companies that are just that to me should be embarrassed but there isn't even the awareness to be embarrassed no no absolutely. <laughs> which is amazing yeah um, yeah. You do a lot in, in, in the education of, of actors. I know mm -hmm. you, you do, you've just, you know, we were talking about the University of Windsor. You, you work, I know that you teach at, at George Brown. Yes. Theater school and a number of other places. Um, I don't want to add, I mean, the, the, do you see changes in the classes in terms of people of color or are the classes still, when I was in school at theater school at George Brown, I think, there were no people of color in my class, mm -hmm. and I think there was one in the year behind me. Uh, in the graduating class of 2019, mm -hmm. there were none. There were none. Yeah. Um, the 
first year class this year mm-hmm. is probably the most diverse first year class they've had. Mm-hmm. I think that I think there are 29 students in first year mm-hmm. and I think that 10 of them are non-white. Okay. Um so I mean that's definitely, you know, a a move. Mm-hmm. Uh but it, it's an annoying conversation to have to have to look at every single year and be like, what does it look like this year? What yeah. does it look like this year? Is it more this year? Is it less this year? I mean, how long do we have to kind of even keep these stats? Yeah. It's just silly. And I think that <coughs> a lot of schools, and I really love that there is a very proactive attitude being taken at George Brown, and mm-hmm. I'm very committed to that school. And mm-hmm. the theater school coordinator there, Sue Minor, is incredible, and she's really committed to change. But not enough schools are no. at all. Mm-hmm. And their idea of change is simply let's bring in a diverse student body. Mm-hmm. And I think that they've got it backwards. I think they've got it totally backwards. I think that you have to diversify your faculty first. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There is no reason for kids of color to want to go to a school that has all white that teachers. Has all white teachers. Yeah. There's no reason for the parents of those kids to want to send their kids to a school that has mm-hmm. all white teachers. You have to be able to come to, you know, the orientation night and see, oh, my kid's going to be taught by people that look like them or group, different types of people yeah. and get the education of different types of people. And for the most part, theater school is not that at all. So I love the fact that George Brown has been very much about bringing in teachers of color, mm-hmm. guest directors of color. That to me is huge. Mm-hmm. And that that will capture the interest of potential students. Mm-hmm. When you were going to the University of Windsor, I remember uh, you, you made a post on Facebook about, about arriving and the lone black actor in that class mm-hmm. so happy to see you as mm-hmm. a teacher of color. And that must happen, that must, like, that must unfortunately happen quite a bit in a lot of schools. Well, I haven't taught at a lot of theater schools. Mm-hmm. I've taught I've taught in different settings, but in yeah. terms of theater schools, it's just okay. Windsor and George Brown. But I can certainly say that the connection that the kids of color feel to me is palpable mm-hmm. and real. Sure. Very much so at George Brown. Mm-hmm. And uh and yeah, Jamar's response when I arrived at Windsor was just it was raw mm-hmm. and immediate. And he had been waiting for four years to have someone at the front of the room who looked like him. Four years is a long time. To it's wait a for that. long time. Yeah. It's a long time. Especially going in, like learning about what the industry is like to only see white faces for that long. Yeah. Yeah. And and then and people wonder why so many kids of color drop out of theater school. I wonder why they don't all drop out of theater school. Mm. Because if you are in a school where week after week, month after month, year after year, you are not seeing any evidence that there's actually a place for you. Right. Nor are you being given any curriculum that reflects you. Mm. Why why would you feel why would you feel good there? No. Hmm. It doesn't matter how nice to you your white friends are. No. You feel very very much like the other. And based on who has been hired as teachers and what has been chosen as syllabus, you're like, I don't exist. Yeah. So why am I here? Yeah. No, that's absolutely. Yeah. That's, I mean, of course, 
I, you know, I, 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 I move through the world in that, 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 that place of privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I can understand exactly what that, what I can imagine what it would be like to be in a room for four years in classes and never see somebody who looks like me. Um, and not feel like, and, and feel like that reflects the industry that I'm hoping to go into. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, approaching Othello, um, <laughs> which oh, I mean, I, I'm hearing. Yeah, I mean, that is that. I think that's one of the. I think you know that's a play that that is problematic. Um, it's a play that has a history of of white people saying they want to play that role, and and uh, I think even even still today, some people. Will 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 put on blackface so they can play that role and 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 things like that and 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 we the new thing is white women playing it white women white women yeah. playing it yeah that's even, interesting that's interesting <laughs> I just don't even I don't even see how yeah I, it's I, yeah, yeah. No. so Othello it is it is problematic I love the play mm-hmm. it's one of only two Shakespeare's that I love actually mm-hmm. I'm not a Shakespeare person okay. So that's something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and when I was asked to do it, I was probably as stunned as I have ever been in my life <laughs> to be asked <laughs> to do anything. Right. I'm like, was this email sent to the right person? <laughs> it starts with hi, Tanisha, but I don't yeah. understand. Um, and my initial impulse was no. Hmm. No, no, I'm not going to do Othello. I'm going to, I'm going to. That is a disaster waiting to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, I have never directed Shakespeare. I am a contemporary director. Mm -hmm. And then I thought about it. I thought about the fact that uh, a friend of mine had very, very strongly... um, had first told Windsor about the work that I was doing. Mm -hmm. And they had heard of me, but they didn't know detail. And she had spoken to them about my work at George Brown, and they had kind of done a little bit of, you know, research on me. And they thought, this could be really interesting. Like, Mm. this could be really interesting. And when, you know, they decided to do Othello, my friend Paula Wing, who I'm going to give a shout out to, hi, Paula, said, if you're going to do Othello at Windsor with Jamar, it has to be Tanisha. Mm. And I was like, Jesus, Paula, what? So I said yes, and immediately went into panic mode. <laughs> yeah. Immediately. Mm. Because I, I had given them my word. We had arranged a schedule. They had altered the rehearsal schedule to, to fit me so that I could come home on weekends, because otherwise I was going to be in Windsor for six straight weeks. Right. So they had really made it work for me, and I was like, I have to do this. And then I thought, well, I guess I should read the play again. So, <laughs> so, I read, yeah, yeah, yeah. so I read the play a couple of times and then I read like all of the kind of, you know, access, the more accessible language versions of the play. Mm-hmm. And then I went back and read it again. And it was, I, I remembered, you know, why I had really liked the play. I had liked the play because to me, it is the story of the other, mm-hmm. which is a story that I can always find my way into. Mm-hmm. And being so much older than when I first read it in high school and then read it again in, in 
um, a few years later, reading it now, I was able to find all sorts of things that were super interesting. Mm -hmm. And it's the story of this, you know, this black man who has ascended to the role of general Mm -hmm. in a society where the fact that he has ascended there is crazy in itself. Mm-hmm. And he knows very, very well that the only reason why he is revered and loved is because of the power that he holds. Mm-hmm. But he knows that were he to lose that, that there is no innate respect for who he is as a person. Mm-hmm. Like he goes back to being just a more and just a nothing. And so that desire to to hold on to that power and to hold on to the respect that that power gives him is is real. Mm-hmm. And he knows that what the things that he has gained, the the love of Desdemona and, and the respect of, you know, Cassioniago, these are all things that he has because they look up to the position that he's gotten himself to. And so when things start to happen that make him doubt um the loyalty of these people mm-hmm. everything becomes then a weight for the other shoe to drop mm-hmm. when are these people who i actually believed had gotten to the point of respecting me going to turn right. and when that happens i lose everything mm-hmm. and you find out very early in the play that he he was once a slave right and so it's that that step away from being back there mm-hmm. that is mm-hmm. always a breath away for him. Mm-hmm. And that feeling to me is so modern. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's so it's so 2019. I understand that feeling that uh black people and particularly black males have of no matter what I ascend to, in a second, I'm nothing. Mm. In a second, I'm nothing. And that was really, really fascinating to me. And I also wanted to do what I don't think is done enough with Othello, and that is to look at the women. Mm. Because there are three women in the play who, you know, one of them has a, a lead role, One of the, the other one has like a kind of secondary lead role, and then one is just kind of like the whore in the background. Yeah, yeah. And I wanted to flip that. So my production, the very first people that you see on stage are Bianca and Emilia, followed by Desdemona. Mm-hmm. And that sense of who they are within this and the power that they hold within it mm-hmm. was really important to me. Um I added a dialogue less scene that is just Bianca and we just get to see her mm. living her life. Mm. Um, she's walking down a street and she just keeps being uh, approached and accosted by, by men. And we kind of see her extricate herself from that and then just go home and just kind of be there, mm. you know, getting out of her, all the accoutrements. And then at the end of it all kind of taking out of her bosom, her money for the day. Mm. Mm. And it's a and it's a really beautiful moment, and I and I wanted to really play up the humanity of the women. I also wanted to play up the very real love between Othello and Desdemona, which is sometimes lost. Yeah, um, they are 
after we see the, the three women, we see Othello immediately. We, Othello and Desdemona slow dance on stage. That's like their first moment. Nice. It's beautiful. And they like they make out. And it's just the, the, the fact that there is this passionate, like, undercurrent of real connection between mm-hmm. them is ever present mm-hmm. in the in the play. And so when he starts to doubt her and when she starts to feel unloved by him, you feel it way deep down yeah. that this is unraveling and it's so sad. Yeah. It's so sad. And especially since you know that the whole thing is being misunderstood on both sides. It's so Yeah. Yeah, it's it's mm. brutal. Mm. For somebody who doesn't really like Shakespeare, that's a lot of that's a lot of Yeah, I mean I, I think I think in order to do it I had to do it, as Frank Sinatra would say, yeah. my way. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I, I did. And, <clears throat> and there's there's one other scene close to the end that, that I added in between the very last scene of the play and the penultimate scene, which we called it 5.1 and a half. And it's a scene where Othello is uh, shackled mm-hmm. and he's just kind of roaming through Venice, feeling mm-hmm. very, very lost and very alone. Mm-hmm. And he falls to his knees, and then very slowly, all of the Venetians just kind of come out from the corners and surround him and just stare. Mm. And the mm. gorgeous lighting of, of our lighting designer, Kristen Watt, you just see this black man surrounded by these very white faces, and they're just mm. staring at him. Mm. And Desdemona emerges, and he thinks, okay, she's coming to be with me, and then she joins them. Mm. And it's so, uh-huh. it's it's just a moment where every time we ran it, like, my blood just ran cold. Mm-hmm. And I don't really, I don't ever really believe in adding text to, to plays. But in this particular scene, I said, I just want everybody on stage before you leave to just utter a slur. Mm-hmm. I just want, mm-hmm. I just want to hear all of the things that they are thinking while they're smiling at Othello. Mm-hmm. And so it, all of them utter slurs. I went back and forth in my head about the N-word or not. Yeah. Took it out at the last moment um, only because I didn't want there to end up being any controversy that right. that hurt the school. Right. So I took it out at the last moment. Um, but early on in the play, when Othello tells the story about being sold into slavery, I kept having that thought in my head. So after they all say their slurs... Um, Desdemona doesn't say one. She's just kind of on the bed staring at him. But as they all say, there's there's an exit. Uh, Iago is the last person to speak. And he just like slams the stage and just says sold. Mm. And walks out. Mm. And, 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 yeah. And and Othello's just there chained. Yeah. And it's, uh, every time we ran it, like the cast would just be like, damn, like it's a, it's a really harrowing moment beautiful moment devastating moment and and it goes right into that final scene with with desdemona and and othello when he loses it and Mm -hmm. and kills her yeah we spoke um several years ago yeah um around the time that you were directing the seat next to the king yes which has had quite a few revivals since fringe it's been cool i mean yeah you interviewed us before fringe um we had a remount at the theater center Mm -hmm. in which we added about 10 minutes 
and that was great. And then, um, and then a different production of it was done in Buffalo, a completely different production, yeah. uh, which was kind of hard for me. But I'm like, okay, Stephen, you go. Yeah, <laughs> it's really great. Um, and then we took it to Kitchener in June, right? And that was fantastic. We didn't know what was going to happen no. in Waterloo because we know yeah. it's a very conservative audience, and yeah. we're like, how are they going to take this gay interracial thing? Um, it was full every night. They loved it. Wow. They loved it. And the company that presented us, Greenlight Arts, oh my God, what incredible, beautiful people. Nice. It was, it was such a great, great time. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that show, um, going into Fringe, it was the, 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 won the new play contest. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think that you did not know him before. No. No? Yeah. No, I was on the jury. Of the new play right. contest and fell in love with the play. Didn't know Stephen from Adam. Mm. And after the play won, I couldn't get it out of my head. Mm. And I contacted Lucy at the fringe and I said, can I have that winner's address, like email address, <laughs> because I'm obsessed with his play. Yeah. And that's how we met. Nice. Yeah. 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 I mean, was it, and I'm think, trying to, every fringe is like, a bit of a blur. Mm-hmm. So, like, I don't remember how it was received. Do you remember how... At the, the Fringe? At the Fringe, yeah. <sighs> we, we sold out nice. every show. Wow. We were patron's pick. We got mm. five ends from now. Wow. And I remember the moment that opening finished, mm-hmm. and I thought that went really well. And we came out, and we were standing on the sidewalk of Pasmarai, and there was a very palpable buzz in the air and it felt really good and suddenly I got a ping on my phone and I looked down and it was Twitter and it was Glenn Sumi mm-hmm. and he hadn't rated it yet but he just said right. get to the seat next to the king it's extraordinary wow and that was like three minutes after the show ended wow and I was like oh my god and then yeah. we got and then we got the five ends the next day mm-hmm. and after that it was just it was amazing it yeah. was amazing it was such heartfelt responses Mm. people writing us letters and notes and it was yeah it was really incredibly beautiful Mm. the most the most well received anything i've ever been Mm. a part of has been for sure Mm. yeah and it's continued to have a life after and it's continued to have a life and it got published which i'm super excited about steven and i are on the same um the same publishing label which is really cool shirako and I just, I'm so happy to see how well it's doing. Mm-hmm. At one point, it was, like, really high on the playlist on um, Amazon. Like, it, for, wow. yeah, for play sales. Wow. Like, yeah, like, he's he's doing really, he's yeah. doing great. And it's a beautiful show. I think that ultimately, we would all love to take it to the States. Sure. I don't know if that will happen, but it's, uh, it's a lovely piece of work. It's part of my syllabus mm. at George Brown. Nice. Yeah. Nice. It was really cool to see some first years do a scene from it last oh, year. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And had you, you gave it to them? Yeah. 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 Awesome. Um, as, a, as a playwright, are you are there themes that you are drawn to that are different from the themes that you are drawn to as a, as a director, or do they tend to be the same sorts of things? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, I think that they're fairly... Similar. I love stories about outsiders. Mm-hmm. I love stories about people having to employ tremendous amounts of courage to mm-hmm. overcome something. 
Um, in in general, I'm just I'm I'm drawn to people that are brave, mm. and I'm drawn to people that are honest. Mm. And so, when when that's in stories or people people who are who are struggling to be brave and honest, mm-hmm. I I tend to go in those directions. Um, but yeah, I don't know when I when I write. I try not to be quite as depressing anymore. <laughs> I think that lots of playwrights go through their their very ultra angsty period. Oh sure. Um, and I mean, you know, I write whatever I feel. Sure. I, I don't make myself do anything one way or another. But I think that as I've gotten older, I've realized that you can actually you know, celebrate joy. Yeah. And that's a nice thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think for, for some people, for some of us, you know, when we're, when we're a lot younger, we think that, oh, if I'm going to be a playwright, I have to be serious. I have yeah. to be a serious playwright. And so we, we delve into all the angst that we're probably feeling at that time. And yeah. Things like that. But there's also this bizarre belief that joy isn't serious. Yes. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think that, to, to truly be happy or to truly be in a place of joy or, or contentment or euphoria, like that is that is some serious feeling, mm. but we don't necessarily see it. We see it as more frivolous. Yeah, yeah. Tanisha, what is your theater origin story? What is it that <laughs> what is it that, that brought you into this strange profession life? Into this into office, this, all of this. But what 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 brought you here? Oh my goodness. Okay, so theater was not what I wanted to do when I was younger. Um, music was my love. Okay. Music was my passion. I wanted to be a singer-songwriter, or perhaps if I couldn't make it as a singer-songwriter, a record producer. Okay. Or an A&R person. Like, that's what I wanted to do. And so um, after going to Ryerson, where I studied radio and TV... I went to the Harris Institute for the Arts, and I studied music industry business mm-hmm. and production, audio production, and that was what I wanted to do. And I was writing. I've been. I've. I. My song catalog is probably somewhere around eleven hundred. Wow. I've been. Yeah. I've been writing since I was thirteen, and my my teens and twenties were insanely prolific. Mm. Like I was writing a song a day at at one point for months. Wow. And sometimes, sometimes multiple songs a day. Um, and so I was like, that's what I'm going to do, clearly. And I've been singing since I was very, very wee, like three years old. But I had a bizarre experience with a record company where an A&R person told me <laughs> that he loved my stuff, but I sounded too white and he didn't know what to do with me. <laughs> well, uh... So that was interesting. What do you even... <laughs> do with that so i wrote a song about him called tale of the a and r man <laughs> <laughs> which i think is a legitimate a legitimate thing to do and um do you want to pause it? and i wrote that song and mm-hmm. and after a while um after years of kind of you know doing the demo thing and all that and realizing it wasn't happening i had to start to really rethink <clears throat> my life um I had to really rethink my life and I was still devoted to doing it, but 
it wasn't happening and I was doing other jobs to survive. I was working in box offices. I was ushering all of those things. Mm -hmm. And one day I was going through Now Magazine and I saw an ad for an audition for the Vagina Monologues. Okay. And I was like, oh. And I knew the play very well because I had been an usher for it. Okay. When it had first come to Toronto. So I had stood at the back of the theater and seen it probably 60 times. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I know this play. I can do this play. And so the audition was, I think, either later that night or the next morning. It, there was no time, really, to book an audition. Mm -hmm. So I just went where it was and I crashed the audition. Mm -hmm. And they said, we're sorry, we don't have any spots. And I started crying. <laughs> And I'm like, but I came all the way from the east end of Scarborough. <laughs> like, it was so sad. It was so, it was so sad. Right. Um, and they were like, okay, this chick is crying. <laughs> we'll, okay, we'll find you a spot. So they found me a spot. And I auditioned in front of a panel of about six people. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the audition, there was just silence. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. Mm -hmm. And they ended up giving me the closing piece in the show mm. and telling me that that was stunning. Mm. And I was like, oh, okay. And so I was cast in the show and suddenly I was in a cast and I was in a cast with Judith Thompson was in the cast, but I didn't know who she was. She was just to me, Judy from the cast. Right. Um, Rachel McAdams was in the cast. She was really lovely. I learned hanging out with her for a day that I'd never want to be a star because no. it's like being in a fishbowl. <coughs> oh we, went, we went to Tim Hortons and all people did was stare at her for an hour. Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh. Oh. So that was weird. Um, but that was the beginning. Mm. And doing that show was great. Yeah. It was absolutely great. And then after doing it, the producer of the show was um, going to step down. And I said one day in jest, oh, I'll produce it. But then no one else made the same joke. <laughs> and so I became the producer. Mm. And once I became the producer, I didn't really know what producers did, but I knew that the one thing that they did for sure that I knew was that they hired the director. Mm -hmm. So I became the producer, promptly hired myself, and directed the show right. every year for mm. the next six years. Produced and directed it for the next six years. Because it was an annual event. It was right. V-Day Toronto was this annual um, fundraiser to raise money to end violence against women. Mm -hmm. And we would give the money to local shelters and women's organizations. And so I, my theater life and my activist life became started simultaneously. And I became very deeply connected to working in that realm. Um, I had also been uh, a, a crisis hotline counselor for the Toronto Rape Crisis Center mm -hmm. before. So it was something that felt very natural to me. Yeah. And I was just, I just led that from 2007 until 2013. Mm -hmm. And then I read it and then I led a national um, campaign. Wow. And kind of, you know, after 2014, I stepped away from that a little bit. And at that point, I was really in love with theater. I had devoted myself to theater. I had uh, begun working professionally. I had mm -hmm. become an apprentice with, with Obsidian in 2010 mm -hmm. that was my professional break philip took me on as an apprentice mm -hmm. and after that doors started opening because mm -hmm. i started to assistant direct and yeah. work with other companies and 
that was how I started. Between 2010 and 2014, I worked a lot um, with different companies, worked with Musical Stage, led their youth initiative program called One Song Glory, um, did lots of drama and theater leadership work with the TDSB, was a resident artist educator with YPT. And before I knew it, I had this resume of working with a lot of companies. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was kind of that was kind of where it went. And I think probably around <coughs> 2016 or so, after six solid years, I looked back at my resume and I was like, okay, this is getting like super serious. Mm. Um, and so I think at that point, I started to think wow, at one point, a position of leadership might be cool. Yeah. But I still thought it was going to be like 10 years from now. <laughs> so being in this office is mildly absurd. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask you about that That first time as producer? Mm-hmm. When, you know, as a joke, you said, I'll produce it. And then yeah. you ended up actually doing it. Yeah. Did you have to learn entirely as a trial by fire? Was there anybody who sort of like guided you through producing or was it just like, I guess stuff, I will figure it out as I go? Nope. The producer actually had promised that she was going to give me like a little handbook manual. And I was excited about that. And then she didn't give it to me because she was mad that I had decided to direct. She didn't think I should direct. She didn't think I had experience. She's like, you're going to destroy the show. And she never gave me the handbook. So I directed and produced on instinct. Um, would, would you advise that for people? <laughs> well, it, it was funny because keep in mind that when I started at with the monologues, mm-hmm. I, I didn't have a theater background. That's I had a music true, and an right? audio production background. So after doing it the first time and it was beautiful and I felt this like wave come over me of, oh, sorry, That's okay. of I love acting. Um, I thought I should probably study something. Mm. But at that point, I'm like, I'm an adult. I I can't go back to school full time. Like, I'm way past that. I have a job. And so I went searching for theater education. And I found at Seneca College, Mm. the one diploma program in the country that was continuing ed. Really? And I was able to go to theater school in the evening and work during the day. Wow. And that was... Like, if that hadn't happened, I would not be here because that actually gave me some some theater chops that allowed me to put that on a resume to Mm -hmm. get the Obsidian apprenticeship. Um, You know, other than just doing having done activist theater, I actually had some some education. And so that was huge. And I and I and I started to learn, you know skills and technique as an actor, not just doing what I did, which was letting my emotions lead me, which is how I pretty much do everything. <laughs> Before we finish, yeah. um, I want to ask about... So you've come in to a season that um, was not built by you. That's right. Um, so your 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 the next season will be one that, that, that is, is, is all yours. Right now, I mean, everything is sort of your baby, but it's not like... You sort of adopted this baby, and yeah. next season will be the one that you that becomes uh, Tanisha Tate. Well, I actually, season. it's interesting. I actually have okay. a partly adopted baby in next season too. Oh, okay. Yeah, hmm. because there was a show that was meant to be in this season uh-huh. that logistically, with the venue, didn't end up working, okay. and so it's been pushed back. Okay. So the beginning of my next season is actually the last show that Marjorie programmed, okay. and then I start. Okay. So it's a little strange. Um, 
but I'm super excited in terms of what I'm going to be doing production wise and not just production wise. Mm -hmm. I have so many just initiatives and programs and cool community things that I want to do that I've already kind of started. And so to me, because Cahoots doesn't have this giant production budget, a big part of this job to me is what else can I do Mm -hmm. that makes Cahoots have a real heartbeat in the business between the shows. Mm -hmm. And so that's, um, that's very much what I'm thinking about right now. Awesome. Tansha, thank you so much. Thank you. This has been a Homebody Productions production.